by witnesses named in the creed. But either way, this means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence, and therefore the beliefs that make up this creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself. So friends, the point is, there is no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area is James D.G. Dunn. And this is what he said about this creed. He said, quote, This tradition, by that he means this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. Friends, this is historical gold. Historians drool over stuff like this. And this is a news flash from the beginning. In fact, nowhere ever in history do we ever see a legend developing that fast and wiping out a solid core of historical truth. In fact, one of the greatest classical historians who ever lived, uh, A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford, he actually studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he said the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. And that's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, elsewhere in the epistles that, that were all circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. We have reports of his resurrection that are so early that you can't write them off as being a legend, but that's not all we've got. We've got a third word that begins with the letter E. It's the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Jewish council. It was sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty that first Easter morning. Now, some um, critics believe, as I used to believe, that, wait a minute, I'll tell you why the tomb is empty. The body was never really in it. Don't you know they didn't bury crucifixion victims? They left them on the cross to be eaten by birds, or they threw them to the dogs. They, they didn't allow them to be buried. That's why the tomb was empty. Well, wait a minute. I checked it out. What did I find? I found that when you read the Digesta, which is a summary of the Roman law and procedure from the first century, it specifically says that crucifixion victims, execution victims can be buried. Not only that, we have in 1968 the remains of a crucifixion victim who had been buried that were discovered right there some, you know, from the first century. He was executed. They found him with a spike still through his ankle bone. And then just about two weeks ago, they announced the discovery of another crucifixion victim who had been buried. So we have archeological evidence that yes, some crucifixion victims at least were buried. And we have good reason to believe that's what happened with Jesus. So what happened to him? How did the tomb get empty? You know, how can we, how can we know that it really was empty on that first Easter morning. Well, we could talk the rest of the day about all the various strands of historical evidence that established the empty tomb, but I'm just gonna give you one fact. Because to me, this, this is conclusive, and here it is. 
Even the enemies of Jesus admitted that it was empty. How do we know? Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents of Jesus never said was, baloney, go open the tomb and you'll find the body. That's all they needed to say. It would have put the onus on the disciples to prove it. But they didn't say that. What did they say? We know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is that? That's a cover story. They're implicitly conceding the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. See what I'm saying? It's like if you're a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So either um, explicitly or implicitly, both the supporters and the enemies of Jesus are saying the same thing, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. I don't think that's ever been the question of history. We're all conceding that. Really, the question of history is, how did it get empty? That is the question. So you look at the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the opportunity. I think the best explanation for the tomb being empty is that Jesus physically returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 people, to skeptics and doubters, as well as to believers, to men, to women, daytime, nighttime, to groups, to individuals. Uh, people uh, talked to him, they, they touched him, they ate with them. But think of this. Remember we said earlier, we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And of course, the historical record tells us this experience revolutionized the lives of the disciples. I mean, after Jesus is put to death, they're afraid they're going to get executed. They go into hiding. They're going to go back to the fishing business. And yet, history undeniably tells us just a few weeks later, in the very same city where Jesus has been executed, these once cowardly disciples are now proclaiming with boldness that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And they were willing to proclaim that message to their deaths. Now, how some of the disciples actually die gets a little cloudy in ancient history. But that's not my point. My point is their willingness to die. We have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that confirm that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they saw on CNN that Jesus had risen? No. 
Because they read it in the New York Times? No. Because a Sunday school teacher told them? No. Because they were there. Of all human beings who've ever lived in history, the disciples were in a unique position. They were there. They encountered personally the resurrected Jesus. They knew for a fact, is this a lie or is it the truth? And knowing it was the truth, they were willing to die for that proclamation. That tells me something about the veracity of their claims. Friends, I spent almost two years of my life investigating the minutia historically around the resurrection of Jesus. And it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I realized, you know, at some point, every juror needs to reach a verdict. And I thought, you know what, the evidence is in. I'm not, after two years, I don't think I'm going to find some news flash, something I missed. So I said, I got to reach a verdict. So I sat down with all the evidence I'd encountered over this two years, massive volumes of material, and I'm, I'm kind of sorting through it. And then wait, I stopped, and I go, wait a second. And I kind of stepped back and said, you know, in light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. I mean, that was my conclusion. It was like the scales just tipped like this. And I realized, based on the historical data, I was convinced Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And then you know how I felt? I kind of felt let down. I, I did. I, I thought, it's been two years. Shouldn't, a, shouldn't an angel appear about now? I mean, that would be cool. Something, an earthquake would be great. Something dramatic. It was kind of let down after two years. Is that it? Is that it? But then I read a verse. John 1, 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I realized, okay, Believing the evidence, concluding, reaching the verdict that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, backed it up by returning from the dead. That's great. That's important. It's not enough. It's not enough. Believe plus receive. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. And so I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ and I became a child of God. And I remember... I remember Leslie burst into tears and she threw her arms around my neck and she said, you hard-hearted son of a Baptist, I've been telling you this for two years, hello? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, she didn't say that. <laughs> I always wish she'd said that because that would have been a great story. That, that would have been a great capper if she had done that, but that's not Leslie. She burst into tears and she threw her arms around my neck and she said, oh honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church, and I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. 
He's a hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint put her arm around her shoulder and pulled her to the side. And she said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so what I never knew at the time, this whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, what I never knew is every day my wife behind the scenes was on her knees praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I received Jesus as my forgiver and leader, now that I'd become a child of God, and then over time, as I was baptized, as I became part of a vibrant church like this one, as I, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to worship, as I learned to pray, God began to answer Leslie's prayers because my values changed and my morality changed and my character changed and my priorities and my relationships and my worldview and my philosophy and my parenting and our, our, our marriage. I mean, all these things over time began to change for the good. And this is always where I would get stuck. Because somebody would say to me, well, Lee, tell me your story. How'd you come to faith? Okay, and I'll tell the whole story up to here. And I wouldn't know what to say. Because what, what, what stuck me was, was, how do I communicate to you? You didn't know me when I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley. You didn't know me when I was living my former life. So what words can I use to help you understand the difference Jesus has made in my life? You see what I'm saying? I, how do I explain that to you? Because you didn't know me back then. And I asked God, what do I say? And the only thing I can say is what happened to my little girl, Allison. Think about this for a second. Here's a little kid, five years old by then, when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon when I gave my life to Jesus, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something is new with my dad. She's never studied ancient history, never interviewed a scholar, never studied archaeology. She's just five years old. But she could listen, she could watch, she could observe, and she did. She watched how God changed my life. And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday morning, she came up to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five... At age five, my little girl received this forgiveness and gift of eternal life from Jesus, became a child of God. Today, she's married to a seminary graduate. Uh, she's a novelist. She writes works of fiction, but they all have the message of Jesus woven into them. Her and her husband together write children's books about God. She is the mother 
of two of my four precious grandchildren. And today we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son saw the difference that God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. And he came to faith at a young age too, but he took an academic route, got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies, got a master's degree in philosophy of religion, got another master's degree in New Testament. And then after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD in theology. And so now you know what he does? He's a professor at one of the largest Christian seminaries in America, teaching young people about Jesus Christ. And five years ago, five years ago, his wife gave birth to our first grandson and he named him after his dad. Friends, God rescued our family. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. He changed me. And now next month, Leslie and I will celebrate our 46th wedding anniversary together. So that's my story. That's my story. So let me, let, let me just end with this. Let me just take my story and apply it to you. Remember that equation from John 1.12, believe plus receive equals become? You might be here today because you're like I was and a friend invited you and you're a skeptic and you're not sure about this stuff. And what I said today resonated with you, but you're still on a journey. And I wanna say this to you. If you do not right now believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that's okay. It's okay, as long as you do what I did and you check it out. Do your own investigation. Check it out, the historical data is there, but you owe it to yourself to investigate it. The Old Testament and the New Testament both say, if you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're gonna find him, you're gonna find him. But I'm gonna end with this. Some of you may believe, but you're not sure if you've ever received. You know, you come to a place like this and, and you hear people talk with such passion, right, about their relationship with God. They have a personal, authentic, deep relationship with God. You hear them talk this way and in the back of your mind, you're thinking, why is it not like that with me? Why, why does God seem so distant from me? Could it be because you believe the right stuff, which is great? but there's never really been a point in time where you have received Jesus as your forgiver and leader, received this free gift of his grace. And thus, according to John 1:12, become an authentic child of God. I'm just asking the question. You know, the Bible says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you in a state of confusion. He doesn't want you wondering in a state of ambiguity where you stand with him. You can know for a fact that you are adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High. You can know it. How? When you believe and you receive. You may say, well, how can I believe? I still got questions. Of course we all have questions. That's okay. All you need to know for sure right now is Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and he backed it up by returning from the dead.